Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope everyone is having a great day. In today's podcast, we are going to be going over uh, questions that listeners had asked of us on Twitter. Every now and then, I'll do a tweet uh, calling for questions that we will answer on the podcast. So to be able to um, uh, ask a question in the future, you could either DM me and I'll um, cue them, or you can wait for when I say we're going to do a Q&A and what do you want to ask Jeff? Uh, and you can do that by following me on Twitter at Focused Compound. Okay. Our first question comes from our friend Trey, and he says, does the trend towards indexing and passive investing increase or decrease the advantage for individual investors investing in microcap or overlooked stocks? How do you think this plays out in the future? Will there always be a place for investors safe from quants? That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I read some commentary by someone who talked about how many of their stocks were in indexes. And I was thinking about that. Um, we don't really own stocks that are in indexes at all. Um, so I guess in a sense, they're more separated out from stuff like that, from indexing. So maybe that will lead to more of a, uh, separation there where those things are cheap. Um, I mean, the, the honest answer is that like, there's no problem with a stock being <laughs> too cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know people are afraid of that, but if your stock is too cheap, it can buy back stock, pay dividends and stuff. It will get taken private eventually. So the, the only danger really is getting stocks that are overly expensive. So if you're, if it happens that indexed stocks turn out to be more expensive and stocks that aren't in an index turn out to be less expensive over time, returns of microcaps will be better because of that. Um, not worse. Mm -hmm. It could be in the short run that they're worse, but in any way, it, it, if indexing inflates the value of some stocks, then stocks that aren't in the index will do better in the long run. Got it. Um, I pulled one from my email. Okay. And the question was, what are some factors that can skew book value for companies and what adjustments do you make to account for them? Looking at tangible book value for companies with goodwill on the balance sheet might be one example, but what about companies that take large charges or buy back tons of stock? pension question mark do you ever adjust for those or anything else that comes to mind yes i do adjust for those things so first thing is that normally when looking at book value we only care about tangible book value for the most part um other forms of book value that include goodwill and intangibles is going to tell you more like what kind of returns the company is getting on their acquisitions and stuff so it's useful in that way but not in the way of like looking at how cheap it is mm -hmm. um the pension stuff's complicated so i do look at pension stuff and generally, I adjust the assumption for the return on plan assets to a number that I pick, which may be lower than what the company has. And then I assume that their earnings are actually being overstated by the difference. So let's say that you have a plan with $100 million in assets and you expect 8.5% uh, returns. And I expect that given your mix of stock and bonds, you should have 5% return. Then I take 3.5% of 100 million is 3.5 million and assume that actually I have to take 3.5 million away from your earnings. Because in my thinking about it, what's happening is you're having a hole over time. It's not going to be obvious in years where the stock market is performing well. There's an actual gap that eventually one day you'll have to put in cash. Um, having said that, a hole in your pension plan is actually a very good source of funding. It's so like sometimes people take that um, 
let's say that you have an unfunded pension to the extent of like a few hundred million dollars and think that's the same as debt, I disagree with that. I think it's much better to have a poorly funded pension plan uh, as your liability than to have like a hundred million dollars of debt due this year. Mm -hmm. It's a really good way of having it. It's sort of like a, a you know um, obligations that an insurance company has far in the future or something where they've taken premiums today and they have to pay it off later. So that is how I adjust it. There's other things that can skew it. Um, mostly they matter for smaller companies. So for really big companies, a lot of it's going to average out and stuff. So you don't have to worry about it as much if you're investing in $10 billion companies, even billion dollar companies. But when you get to really small companies, then you have things that have to do with um, land and stuff like that. Um, the big differences are like land and um, what they call biological assets, which are accounted for differently under GAAP and IFRS. And so that would be timber companies, um, vineyards, things like that. And they can skew things pretty big between which method of accounting it's using, um, you know, which country it's in. Got it. Um, any follow-up thoughts on Necker and if it's gone ahead of itself? And are you still bullish on NACO? Um, well, Necker has resolved now. Uh and I guess at a value that was pretty similar to what we talked about early on. Mm -hmm. So you could say maybe it did get ahead of itself because I think when we talked about it, if you had just put like a 50-50 probability or however you want to put it, like a 50-50 probability, either party would have won everything they wanted or that they would have cut the cake down the middle. What turned out happening is not that far different from that. And so that kind of shows you all the guesses and things that you could make couldn't really be much better than just flipping a coin on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um it's always, I mean, I don't want to get into lots of things about it because we don't talk about it that much, but it has always concerned me that that came up. That's highly unusual for there to be that big an adjustment to an acquisition price. Um, and that could reflect the other party in that more. Mm -hmm. um, or it could reflect Necker and their management and stuff. And so I would say there's certain qualitative issues brought up by that that worried me more than the price. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on NACO? Um, am I still bullish on NACO? I think, uh, I think in general, since we've talked about NACO on this podcast, the um, accumulation of additional assets, businesses, whatever, had and um, the the stock price moves. Um, have mostly meant that it's not the the value to my appraisal of it as a, like a percentage or something has not really shifted much over time. That is not actually a great sign to say that. So in other words, like if I thought it was a fifty cent dollar, let's say, or something mm -hmm. like that, it's still a fifty cent dollar. That might sound good, but after a few years, you need to have increased your value over time. And I would say that hasn't really happened. All that's happened is that to the extent that I believe there was a discount before. I do believe that discount still exists. But another way of putting it is the market and other things we could have invested in have been moving in a forward motion mm -hmm. and NACO has been moving like on a treadmill mm -hmm. in place. Um, not their fault, not management's fault. That's the industry. Um, but in general, it's like we've been owning a, and I'm not saying it is 50 cents, but we've been owning 50 cent dollar that isn't compounding the dollar part of it. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'd say it's cheap, but I would also say that if you look back, it will have most likely been a mistake in the sense, uh, investing in it, in the sense that I look at it from the opportunity cost. 
And so while the discount has been and continues to be bigger than it would be in other stocks, the amount that I know we could have made in other stocks in them actually compounding their value is getting to the point now due to time where it's great enough that if I had put it in a, another stock that was a dollar um, value and we bought it at 90 cents, that dollar would now be a dollar fifty, a dollar probably about a dollar sixty. Actually, um, it would have compounded that much. So, in a sense, um, we've lost time. Not really changing value, if you want to put it that way. It's it's lost time, lost opportunity. Yeah. Would you ever consider to buy a company trading at zero point four times net cash with no debt and declining revenues for the past five years? With the right management or capital allocation, yes. Uh, with the wrong one, no. Would you be interested in J&J Snack Foods at 6% free cash flow yield? Um, I'm not sure. So a few things have changed with J&J Snack Foods. It's huge versus what it was when I invested in it. Mm -hmm. And you also have a difference in management in that when I invested in it, you had a much younger uh, management. Um, so if we look, uh, what do we have as the uh, sales dollar amount of sales 1 billion okay and if we can you look at the excel there can you pull up the excel for yourself sure. there on the revenue um so remember during this period we're going to be talking about there wasn't really a lot of inflation so this is a nominal number but it's not that dramatically different from a real number um so if we look back what's the earliest year in that chart 2001 okay we'll use that so how much was revenue then 352 million that's my problem with it is that in general, I think the returns on capital you can get from like acquiring and stuff when you're as big as you are now is a little harder. And I think um, that I'd be, a, I guess, a little less sure about management um, because you're talking about, um, it's nicer when someone's 20 years younger, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same, like the Buffett argument or whatever. I mean, but you know, Buffett's 90 years old, right? So... I, I don't. I was talking to you the other day about someone who's who people said who's a chairman of a company, and people kept saying, you know, there's the catalyst is he's going to sell the company and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's now 104 and he's still the chairman. So they've been saying that for 25 years. Um, but I, I don't think Buffett will be running things when he's 110. And so same thing here with changing. How do you split your time when deciding to learn about growing your business? You put parentheses marketing, SEO, podcasting, etc. Versus what your business actually does investments that's a great question uh so first we try to cheat a lot and find ways to combine you know to to kill two birds with one stone so for instance on the website uh you know why do i write up about certain companies um because they're things that i'd naturally be looking at and reading the 10ks and stuff mm -hmm. so there's some stuff that doesn't go up because i read the 10k and stuff and yet decide not to do it but in a sense you're seeing maybe one out of every three things that i look at Maybe something like that goes up there. Um, something, you know, I don't know, in that neighborhood. Um, so the majority of stuff is, kind of stays private, I guess. But what does become public is stuff that uh, we've worked on that way. Um, I, yeah, I keep trying to trim the parts of the business that don't overlap that way. So I know there's lots of interest from people about us talking about bigger stocks. You know, we'll probably get questions about it. Uh, 
I try as much as possible to focus in on the overlook stocks that we have and just to spend less and less time even thinking about bigger stocks, even though I know that's the popular thing to talk about. That's what people would like us to do. I just don't even try to read things in the press and stuff about it. I really need to zero in on the smaller ones, which are half or more of the universe of stocks out there. Um, and then the podcast is our marketing stuff. You know, we've mm -hmm. talked about that before. I don't know that we spend more time on marketing than other in uh, money managers do i would say we probably spend less okay but it's public you can see it yeah so we're not going around having a lot of meetings with people it's the stuff. best source of leverage though the podcast so when you have 250 plus episodes out there and as we're sitting here recording this someone somewhere in the world who we probably would have never met in person or whatever or been able to cold call or other mm -hmm. traditional source of uh, marketing that people may do, maybe not cold calling, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's just while we're sitting here, people are listening to us talk. So it's really this idea of content marketing and putting it out there and allowing individuals to self-select into what we do, whether that's, you know, following me on Twitter or listening to the podcast or investing in the fund or signing up for focus compounding. It really all, I guess the backbone is the podcast. Yeah. And podcast, even uh, Twitter, Jeff's goodwill that he's built up over the years i'm just kind of this guy that's helping it out <laughs> and even with uh meeting and stuff we did one thing uh once that was a pure marketing type thing where we didn't yeah. have a we didn't do research stuff with it and in in part of that is that that's a, a partner of ours that was in the llc with us and stuff so even if we hadn't it, whether we thought that was going to get any where in terms of bringing money and stuff or not, we certainly thought we owed it to them um, to do it. But other than that, if we're meeting with people or something, it would be part of a research thing, to be honest. Absolutely. We go we go to certain parts of the country and we're like, if we're, I mean, if we're telling you that, we, oh, we'd be happy to meet with you or something, it means that we're in your area because we're researching something. Yeah, yeah. and it, for like our fund investors or whatever, if we're in an area where I know they live, mm -hmm. I always reach out and say, hey, we're gonna yeah. be in there, do you wanna meet? But there aren't dedicated re, uh, marketing. But it's using your time yeah. to, effectively. So it's like when you're on the road, you're on the road working and you're dedicated that whole time. So you're trying to use every second to every aspect of your business. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Elon Musk's statements that statement that moats don't matter, instead it's the pace of innovation that matters most? Um, yeah, I disagree. Fast innovation with no moat will result in no value for the company over time. So, yeah, we kind of talked a little bit about that with the Howard Marks memo. Yeah, fast innovation, and then you get a moat is what you need, uh -huh. and that is one of the questions about Tesla. People agree or disagree with me on that one. I'm not sure. There's we got a couple a well wishes. Good friend of the year. Thank you okay. so much. How are you and Jeff doing? Missed you guys. <laughs> oh, we missed you. Do you value a company after analyzing all of its competitors or before? Hmm. Before for me, uh, I would say. I don't know if that's like correct or anything, but I would say I just do it before. Analyze the company before? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a way to go about I, it. I guess the way I think about it is I partially analyze companies and then I more fully, it's like a couple passes. Mm. So if you're asking, do I get 80% of the way on a company first before doing other stuff? Yes. But then I don't buy based on the 80%. That other 20% is crucial. And so it depends on the, the industry and stuff. Um, but if we already know the industry, then it's different. Um there's tons of companies where I think I like them a lot. I'd say I'm 80% of the way there. If Andrew was asking me about like 
well, do you think you're going to buy this or something? I could say I'm 80% of the way there. I'll probably say that about 15 stocks for every one we buy or something. You mm-hmm. know? So it's the other 20% of the way, and that does involve investigating other competitors and stuff. How important is management's communication of its business narrative and reversion to its statistical mean play in your universe of overlooked illiquid stocks? Um, so I guess it's kind of two things, right? Um, read me back the very first part of that. How important is management's communication of its business narrative? Not important at all if I think I can figure it out. <laughs> the best case is they're not communicating it, but I think I know what they're doing. That's what you always want to find. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anyone what you're doing, but I can see the, the logic to what you're doing. That's what I want to find. But then can people say, well, don't you want nope. the story to be communicated nope. at some point this is where after we you own it? No, <laughs> this is where we disagree. Always better to have no communication of Why the story. Why is that? And stuff. It'll stay cheap. We could buy more of it, and it doesn't matter. Everyone will buy it eventually that way. Even Look, if if a stock does really well that way in compounds, mm-hmm. people make up a narrative that may or may not have anything to do with what they're actually doing. Once once the stock is compounded for like 20% a year for 15 years, all the other people will follow it, and it doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. like They come up with a story there. So, yeah, in, I mean, I don't know. It's certainly a model for how you can get returns faster. And yes, it would be great if... It's like event-driven in a way. Yes. You create the event yourself. If you inv- if you had a fund that just invested in good companies, that microcap type companies, that aren't telling the market what their story is, and then as soon as you buy them, they tell the, the story, uh, then yeah, you'd have an amazing fund, right? <laughs> um, but I my preference is always that they don't tell people. I really don't. And also, to a certain extent... Do you think a lot of that's because it's hard to come across great ideas, too? So if you're constantly doing that, you're constantly having to flip your portfolio? Yeah, those people would have to constantly be flipping the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing, honestly, is I don't want management pounding into their own head their narrative. A lot of... I mean, when I write things for positive things or whatever, for clients or for whatever stuff, there's a lot of things where I write stuff and then that gets deleted. Because that's not good. It's too positive. It's too... Um, I don't want to be telling myself that the gap between value and what something is worth in some stock or here's the future of what the stock is going to be is that. It's okay for me to think that to some extent, but you don't want to keep repeating out loud certain things that may or may not be uh, true. It becomes harder to not to question those things over time. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes have some positive beliefs about our approach to investing, specific investments and stuff that I don't like to say out loud and to repeat a lot out loud. And it's a harmful thing for us to talk about stocks to some extent. Because think about someone asked about NACO and stuff. Does it become harder to have an open mind and change your mind about things and stuff like mm-hmm. that if you talk about it as much as we do? Sure. I think it does. So same uh, thing with management. Sometimes you gotta, they might have to throw out that playbook. But how do you tell investors this is here's our narrative and it's great and then a few years later tell them oh you know times have changed or we were wrong or whatever the second part of his question was how important is reversion to the mean in our universe of overlooked illiquid stocks so for the way we invest reversion to which is getting back to the howard marks memo which i loved Andrew reminded me that I didn't sound positive enough on it. I actually picked I'm gonna, it out I'm as the cut this out and I'll, I'll put it in the you, other you'll, podcast. Uh, you'll, I asked him after, I was like, did you like the memo? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I liked it a lot. Um, but then I just talked about things I disagreed with or whatever. You can assume that if I didn't say I disagreed with it, I agreed with it all. I liked it a lot. And even the things I disagreed with, I liked. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Um, 
So for our investing, I would say reversion to the mean is not important at all. Uh, in fact, he talked about fade, uh, I forget if he called it fade defying or whatever, um, businesses and um, reversion to the mean. We invest in things that I think will not revert to the mean. In fact, we invest in some cases in things in which I expect returns to get better. So we might pay a premium over book for a bank that is earning 1.5 times or more return on equity of another bank, right? And I think it's going to go to two or more because I look at that and I see the drivers inside the business. And I say, not only will this not revert to the mean, this will never earn as poor returns as your average bank. Their returns are only going to get further and further mm -hmm. away from other banks. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing we invest in. And you can go through all the stuff that we own, um, anything that's public, things about that. And generally, unless it's incredibly cheap, we expect it to be good and getting better. We expect business momentum. Mm -hmm. Now, NACO, no. But you could look at that and say, I think I understand why they bought it at single-digit PE or whatever. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like low single-digit PE. So you could probably figure that out for yourself. Unless we bought it at a crazy cheap price, we aren't really buying for reversion to the mean. When we pay 12 times earnings for something or 16, we don't really, I, you know. But if we pay 12 times earnings for something, we're doing it because we expect the business to get even better probably versus um, peers. We expect less reversion to the mean, more defying that fading that's natural to um, competition. What is the best Christmas gift you have received? You said you both. What is the best Christmas gift that I received? Um, did I get an investing uh, book Christmas? Oh. I don't know. Did I? Was that Christmas? <laughs> From who? What was the Not book for me. I, what, what was that? Did I get you an investing book? Well, I read a book. That was an, I mean. That uh, I sent you? Yeah. Oh, no, that was just me being a, just a nice person. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, I sent Jeff the uh, Almanac of Naval. Okay. I think I pronounced his name right. Almanac of Naval, or whatever that book was. I thought it was a great book. Yeah. Um, and I asked Jeff, I was like, did you like the book? And he's like, it was a very you book, or something like that. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. It was a great no, book. I said, well, yeah, and you asked if I read it. I said, yeah, I read it. I guess I was supposed to tell you that I read well, it. Well, yeah, you know, acknowledge that you received yeah. it, read okay. it, you know, but yeah. Um, so what was the question was, what was the best Christmas gift? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I don't I'm know sure about that either. One. Jeff for Christmas this year got me, this is a nice endorsement, a course, an annual subscription to greatcourses.com. Mm -hmm. And it's great because I'm curious about a lot of different things. And you, they have basically everything. Ben Franklin. Everything ben on the planet. And it's a lecture by a PhD student. They do a really good job, or PhD professor. They yeah. do a really great job and it's a lot of fun. I was just telling Jeff actually that I was watching a course on socialism versus capitalism <laughs> and mm -hmm. like this you know the collapse of the soviet union and all this other stuff so it's kind of cool like i'm turning into a history buff um what is an industry jeff doesn't know slash doesn't feel comfortable investing in and why well there's a lot of them biotech okay pharma, biotech yeah um a lot of semiconductor i'd say semiconductors yeah retail retail is retail just on the automatic no list Monish no, has talked about like anything retail. Just I just don't even look at it. I do look. I do look. I mean the the. I think we talked a little bit about this. I think almost anything having to do with fitness, I wouldn't buy into today, and I have in the past. And I think 
Is that a scar on your back? Let's that you get a from? very uh, for the most sexist answer possible to this. Virtually anything that it's totally has to do with women, especially young women, um, as the purchaser of it, I would probably not invest in. And we talked a little bit about that um, because of the risks of changing taste and the importance of um, the extent to which other people can see what they're what they're buying and how that affects their own decisions and things like that. That that does you young though. I wouldn't say that I want to buy things that older women are are um, the key purchaser for. But yeah, fashion things, fitness things, I think would be in there. Um, anything where there's rapid change in people's decision making about it, I certainly feel more comfortable generally in in um, business uh to business type stuff versus things that are being sold to the consumer that way and then the reverse of that is that i've compared to most value investors definitely the area in which i'm most likely to buy that they're not is banking and insurance yeah why are investors so you know they kind of shun the financials i don't know one, one possibility we were is that talking they about look this cheap. recently like mm-hmm. that their worst experiences are in it because when they look cheap that can be the disasters or when they're fast growers that can be the disasters too so the t- kind of like Buffett spent so much time in financials. Yes, too. yeah, but I think the quantitative thing. If you're if you're all about here's the price to book, here's the PE, or here's my earnings per share growth, financials can be a bit scary that way because the best growth often comes with the highest risk for the future and the most change that way, and then also the low PE and, and price to book in banks and insurers is generally because people are avoiding them, uh, who are looking at their loan book, who are looking at their reserves, things like that. If, if someone comes to me with a really cheap bank, and they have at times, and I passed on it, I can tell you it's because of the loan stuff. So there was a chance for me to buy a bank at, I don't know, um, three or four times. I mean, maybe it was 0.3 times book, and it was likely in normal times to be priced at 1.5 times book. And I didn't like that they weren't writing off stuff that was bad. Um, what were they loaning out? I mean, like, or learning towards. It was heavily construction. Mm. Is that something you typically stay away from? Yeah, they survived. But from, for a decade or more, they've had unusually high write-offs that still had... Im- I think they've been writing off stuff that really is just um, extend and pretend kind mm-hmm. of stuff since <laughs> the crisis. Um, but they got through it, yeah. right? And other banks said, let's, let's take the big bath now. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. Uh, and they weren't wrong. But remember, they weren't wrong with the Fed cutting rates to nothing with what all, everything that happened. So everything that could have positively happened to them, imagine all that couldn't, mm-hmm. that, that might not have. You know, uh, Howard Marks talks about that in some other memos. He says, you know, that like in terms of probabilities and stuff, that it means that more things could happen than will happen. That's like ri- uncertainty and stuff and um, or, or risk. Um, and I just think y- you need to remember that that – I don't want to overlearn the lesson of that bank that they had a lot of losses but made it through it. They had a lot of losses and made it through it in a recovery that wasn't that could have been worse, you know. And the and I would have had to buy it what more than 10 years ago now. So, but yeah, that's an example. And so that one worked out, but there've been others that haven't worked out mm-hmm. and you know which banks and things that people like that I say to you, "Oh, well, I yeah, I've looked at that one. I know that one." Um, is there a type of lending that you prefer? Yeah, there's certain kinds of lendings that I, that I prefer. That's the other thing. Um, when you really think about it, even though I say I'm comfortable with banks and insurers, it's pretty niche groups of things. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, in banking, I really haven't invested 
even um, recommended much or anything, any bank which is largely involved in consumer lending at all. So if you really pay attention to what I've talked about, I've talked about CNI lending. Mm-hmm. I've talked about private banking. I've talked about certain real estate. Um, I've talked about some things like that. Uh, I've not, if you go through the list, it really isn't consumer lending. Um, in insurance, it's car, lo- uh, it's car um, auto loans. I mean, auto uh, coverage. And it's um, including subprime, uh, including um, non-standard. And it's... Um, niche property and casualty stuff. I haven't written about life insurance stuff. I haven't written about a lot of other things like that. So that's, you know, like I said, it's one big general line thing that is car. Um, And then other than that, it's very niche stuff if you look through it. So it's almost none of the big insurers. And, And, you know, so there are parts to the biggest insurers and the biggest banks that I wouldn't feel very comfortable analyzing. Um, I mean, it's, they're both very commodity businesses. Mm. So if you're in that most, and if you're in the things that have the most scale, unless you have certain advantages like Geico and Progressive have and stuff, um, it's tough. It's better if you're in certain niches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really, really tough where you have experience, you know, where you have specialized experience, maybe specialized distribution like um, guy come progress and stuff, but also you have knowledge inside your industry, inside your um, company that others in the industry might not have quite as good um, knowledge. If it's something you can start up tomorrow and duplicate and stuff, then, you know, that's hard, mm-hmm. especially if it's really big, like multi-billion dollar opportunity. Somebody asked a question about free cash flow yield plus growth mm-hmm. and how that will roughly be future forward returns of a company. Yes, I believe free cash flow yield plus growth. If you're, correctly calculating free cash flow and most write-ups i see in value investors club or something have a definition of free cash flow i don't agree with um that there's this giving you a higher yield than i think is really the company has but um if you do that calculation correctly meaning that it tells you what's available for buybacks dividends paying down debt acquiring things nothing that's involved in organic growth um then that will give you the right answer if the multiple is not expanding or contracting over time the longer you own a stock, the less important the change in the multiple is going to be. It still matters, um, but if you own a stock for 30 years, then it's relatively unimportant what happens with the multiple, and it's very important what the free cash flow yield that you bought at plus the growth that we just talked about is going to be. Um, and so the actual free cash flow coming off of it plus the growth, more so than the multiple changing. Uh, still the internal returns. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of what would happen if price wasn't a factor. So that's, if we want to compare growth investing versus value investing, if you imagine like there's a growth component and a value component to something, your value component, your your growth component, I should say, is free cash flow yield plus growth. Your value component is, it gets, is um, like it gets, uh, the multiple expands or whatever you want to put it. But yeah, like that's kind of the owner's return in it if you are buying it and keeping it forever. It's it's the hold forever return. Mm-hmm. Effectively, if you really bought it and never sold it, free cash flow yield plus growth is what you would get. So it's saying that's the buy right part of the equation. The sell part is separate. So I'm just trying to tell you what would happen if you didn't sell this stock. Yeah, I encourage you to, to you know go over a long time frame. You could use this with QuickFS. 
look at the average returns that a business generates internally, and then look at the market capitalization over time and how that compares to the rate of return that you would have gotten if you just bought and held. And you always talk about this, but until you actually do it, you'll really see it that they really do sort of converge over time. Yeah. And it is amazing because like we've, we've um, done the opposite, which is to show you like how for 10 years, Microsoft's business and stock could have nothing to do with each other. Mm. But you explain it out to be 20, 25 years, you, those lines come a lot tighter together. Yeah. So it does require extreme patience though, because like I said, like, you know, there's no promise that that free cash flow yield plus growth will be close to what your actual turn in the business is if you own it for 10 years. I can't promise that if you happen to get in at a really frothy time or, or not for the, mm-hmm. the stock or whatever. But over the very long term, yeah, it mm-hmm. works pretty well. Got it. Cool. Well, we could end on this. Somebody said, how is it going with him? H- how is it going? How is it going with him? Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank everybody so much for tuning into the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you follow me on Twitter uh, to be on the lookout for next time I do a call for questions. And you could ask a question and we will answer it on the podcast. If you want to support everything we're doing here, the best way you could do that is leave us a rating and review on the podcast app and hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And we will see you in the next podcast.